and welcome to the Animal Chat Podcast. I'm Matthew Payne. And I'm Harry Heckman. And what are you doing right now, Matt? Because I suspect it's exactly the same thing that I'm doing. Well, there's two key things. Number one, I am trying to stay awake. See, I can't even say the word awake anymore. <laughs> I'm knackered. I have not slept since I stayed up all last night. Because as we are recording this, this is the 4th. This is Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? It is Wednesday, the 4th of November, UK time. It is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and we have got CNN in the background because you yeah, Both you and I, in our respective homes, have CNN in the background, and we are avidly watching the, <laughs> the US election. I, last night, I had, honestly, at about 2 a.m., watching you know the guy that's been doing the, the CNN thing, you know, the map. The map guy who's actually on right now. (laughs) That guy. When he was like at two in the morning going, so Donald Trump has a 100,000 lead with only 1% of all votes counted. (laughs) That was when I was like, you bastard. But we are all, all of us who are democratically minded, willing, and literally I'm like in a boat, willing pulling with every vote that goes to joe biden's way with like come on it's absolutely crazy right now because and forgive us listeners because this might be a little bit self-indulgent but you you and i have a um i'm <laughs> watching the screen now and we've got anderson cooper and that guy yeah. that is and basically that guy is like a slightly fatter version of anderson yeah. cooper. it's like you blew anderson cooper up a little bit and he- <laughs> it's like anderson cooper yeah. got stung by a bee and has having a mild anaphylactic reaction and anderson cooper is looking at the screen looking at the screen as if he's going mm. this is what happens if I eat shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> to give people a timeline. By the time you listen to this, it is very likely that we will know the outcome of this election. And so that's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. Because we're talking about this. We don't, it, right now, it could go either way. Right now, it could go Trump's way or Biden's way. And there is just this. How many states are in, are still in play? Is it five six. states still in play? So, six right states. now, folks, we're, in, we're at that point when you're going to look back at the election and you'll know the point we're at. We're at the point where Biden is hunting down Trump at the moment. Like he's the mail-in ballots being counted. Georgia is closing the gap. He's closing the gap in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada is way too tight for my liking, but I still think he's going to do it. It's looking encouraging at the moment. Um, so, yeah, so we are kind of like the rest of the world. You know what, Harry? I'm going to get deep with you here. It's not often that in life we do two things. We get to watch democracy play out. And number two, mm-hmm. you get to appreciate democracy. Not everywhere has democracy. It's flawed. I understand it. I'm not pretending this electoral map is perfect. But this is democracy right now. And it's why it's so important. And by the time this comes out, I think you guys should know pretty much if Joe Biden or Donald Trump is the president of the United States. It is exciting, though, isn't it? It is very exciting. Well, you know what? You said before that everybody's watching this. My sister, one of my sisters, is very concerned about this, but can't bear to watch it, so keeps messaging me saying what's going on. Um, (laughs) My my mum, I spoke to before, and she's kind of like, I haven't got, uh, like, I can't. (laughs) I can't can't be dealing with it. My mum is in her 80s, and for her, she's very much... I can't be worrying about this. I have no control over it. I've got some gardening to do. I've got this to sort out. I get that this is too much for some people. And also, it's like watching the longest fucking car crash. (laughs) Your your mum's famous quote to do with this is going to be, I've got some gardening to do. (laughs) (laughs) And as we're watching this right now, you will see on the screen, Biden extends lead. Yeah. In the tight Michigan race. And that is a nice little segue because you know who's from Michigan? No. Yeah. Oh, my God. Tell everyone who's from Michigan. This week's guest on the podcast, Melissa Leshesky. Tell us a little bit about Melissa. So, like, we've talked to people who are more in the public eye, um, but something with this podcast that I think Harry and I really wanted to do was to get you, the listeners, to get to listen to the people we get to listen to at conferences. I met Melissa... Five years ago, at a conference, she I think I talk about this in the podcast, she was working at the Brook. Now, if you don't know who the Brook are, they're one of the world's leading equine charities. And she 
gave a number of presentations and her work was the basis of a number of presentations on behavior change. And the work she does isn't the sort of work you're going to see in a documentary in National Geographic. It's not, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but it's not the sort of thing that you're going to see celebrities next to her doing. She's doing literally on the ground, strategic, essential work all around the world. She's done it throughout her career. And if you want to get into this industry and you want to work in this industry and have a job and work for some of the biggest organizations in the world, listen to this podcast because you're going to listen to somebody who is at the top of the tree. But you know what I mean, don't you, Harry? Absolutely. I've known Melissa for a few years now as well, and our paths have crossed many, many times. The work she's doing is extraordinary. And like you were saying, she's at the absolute top of the game. But the area that she works in or the aspect of animal welfare that she works in is something that you and I have talked about a lot of times and we talk about again on this podcast, which is human behavior change and working with communities because those of us that work in animal welfare know that the root cause of most animal welfare problems is people. And you need to deal with people and communities and help them to resolve the problems to deal with the impact and how that relates to animal welfare and improving the lives of animals. And that is exactly what Melissa does and does it exceptionally well. And she's done it throughout her career. And we chat about all sorts of things And yeah, it's just a really great podcast that I think anybody that is interested in the kind of work that we do and the way in which we work is going to get so much out of this. So shall we do it? it? Yeah. Here's this episode of the Animal Chat Podcast with Melissa Lachesky. Go Michigan! I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which if you could see me on video right now, I'd be holding up my hand because that's what all good Michiganders do because Michigan (laughs) and I'd be pointing on my hand exactly where Grand Rapids is. (laughs) But yeah, no, I grew up there and I went to uni there. I got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree in Michigan uh, before I ended up moving over to Europe after graduation. So that was Mm. that's where home home is. Home home. Was animal welfare or a love of animals was it quite present in your childhood or was it something that came later in life when you were making your decisions of what courses to do or what degrees to do at university yeah no it was there from a pretty early age I would say my parents always laughed because they always recall when they gave me my first baby doll when I was one or two years old and um, they asked me what I wanted to name it and I said ammo which was how I could pronounce animal I wanted to name my first baby doll animal (laughs) I think from then on, they got me all stuffed toys, uh, dogs and and bears and the like. But when I was two years old, I went into one of those farm supply stores in Michigan and I ended up stealing a a baby chick that they had for sale. And I had to go back and apologize and return the chick. And so I think from a pretty young age, my parents knew that I was an animal person. Even when it came time to get my first dog, I even made the local newspaper because I campaigned so long to get this dog. (laughs) (laughs) i made the newspaper and i succeeded i got the dog she was there waiting for me one day when i got home from school so what do you mean by campaign (laughs) i oh man i just wore my parents down for so long but what i did was i got the idea um 101 dalmatians had come out and i just felt this connection to dalmatians i love dalmatians i just thought they were such beautiful dogs i wanted one so badly I literally had probably a hundred stuffed Dalmatian toys. I had every book, every movie, every pencil, everything you can imagine. And finally, one day, my dad had gotten me the dog without sign off from my mom. So she was <laughs> she was telling him, quick, you got to get that dog out of here. You got to give that dog back. This cannot happen. And then I came home from school. I saw her and that was it. <laughs> I love that that made the newspaper, Melissa. That is amazing. That's like, I don't know if you've watched Afterlife on Netflix where Ricky Gervais goes around with like the local community doing little newspaper stories about people that, you know, have got a piece of toast that looks like Robert De Niro and that makes the front page. But I love the idea that you're, the fact that you were campaigning for a dog made the local newspaper. <laughs> and, and the fact you were clearly had thief tendencies when you were a child. 
uh, yeah, stealing, yeah. stealing chickens as well. <laughs> Definitely. This is really silly, but about the film 101 Dalmatians, how it's so interesting when you're younger, how little things like movies can just affect. For me, it was watching Born Free. when I, okay. I remember watching it when I was so young and just the whole romance of Africa and Elsa the Lion and returning it to the wild concept, all that kind of thing. I'm absolutely certain that had such a huge impact on me. But yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, how these these sort of moments and these sort of little things when you're young often guide you when you're older in terms of your decisions and your passions and what you actually want to end up doing. Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely the case with me. It was just something that kind of clicked at at such an early age. I just loved animals so much. And to be fair, I think I came from an animal loving family. My dad was always quite an animal lover. You know, they grew up with pets as well. But um, for me, it was just this undescribable connection I feel like I had from a very early age that I just wanted to be around animals and wanted to help animals. And it really pained me when I saw that animals weren't feeling good or, you know, were struggling. When I was a kid, I, I loved animals as well. And, and Matt and I have talked about this before. And I wish I had a film that I could point to as passionately as the both of you. I feel like I'm missing out somehow. Star Wars doesn't do it. It doesn't have quite the same resonance from an animal welfare perspective, but I was as obsessed with that as uh, as I think anybody can be. But the transition between loving animals and caring about them and being passionate about them and then deciding that you want to work in animal welfare, for me, that was a, a completely different journey. But with you, was that a natural transition, like your love of animals? Did you know that therefore you actually wanted to work with them in some way? Or was that mm. not something that you were even aware of? as a possibility at that age? No, I mean, I at a pretty young age, I had identified that I wanted to be a vet. I think so many animal welfare professionals, this is mm. how their story started. Because when you're at a younger age and you don't really know all the career possibilities that exist out there, you think, okay, I love animals. I'd like to help animals. I guess I have to be a vet. And you don't really realize that there's a lot of other ways to do that. Mm. And so that was kind of always my path. And then when I got into university, A couple of things happened at the same time. One of the things was I failed biochemistry with a vengeance. It was was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, are you kidding me? These are the classes I have to take to be a vet. But, you know, I could overcome that. That was fair enough. But, you know, I started working at a vet practice. I started getting involved in voluntary animal welfare projects and initiatives around the university just because I loved animals and I wanted to learn more. And I started to realize animal welfare is actually a thing. It's a profession. You can Mm. actually do something with this. And actually this kind of suits my interests and my passions and my skill set better than becoming a vet. So that's when I kind of started to shift paths. I just think, Harry, it's really interesting not to, like you say about Star Wars, but I'm really interested in the idea of justice. And honestly, like you laugh, but like- I'm I'm wondering how you're making this connection. I'm I'm really interested in this tenuous connection here. No, but that, that, that movie is good and evil. You know, it's about justice and it's about the fight between good and evil. And I think if you have big emphasis on that in your childhood or that is a big important thing for you, that idea of standing up against injustice. I think that translates quite a lot into helping people or helping animals, you know. So I I think movies like that, while not directly animals, they Mm -hmm. get that idea of standing up against things that you feel are injustice. That's not great grammar, but you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And I, my wife has always, like, we've joked about this, that I have a hero complex. Um, <laughs> and sometimes you realize you're not Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, I'm not, but in a different set of circumstances, perhaps I could have been. But, I, <laughs> but there is a, yeah, I know, that's how she perceives it. But for me, I'd never really thought about it, but I think you're right. And I think that certainly the people that I've met in animal welfare and feel free to chime in on this yourselves as well because I think this is kind of might be a a thing that there is a feeling of justice there is a feeling of there is a a victim here there is something that is weaker that needs help that you feel you're in a position to be able to help and so yeah I think you're right there are links there but yeah I hadn't actually made that connection it makes me feel less (laughs) less stupid about pointing towards Star Wars and influence so thank you for that Matt (laughs) my pleasure it's my pleasure I'm, I'm here all week I think I'm the same in that I admire people that stand up against justice because I worry that I wouldn't do it. It's like some people like mm-hmm. Romeo Dallaire, who you might not know, but he was the leader of the UN mission in Rwanda. Like people like that, 
I've always had an affinity to admire because I question whether I would make the same decisions like he refused to leave when there was a catastrophe happening. And it's the same with animal welfare. It's that idea of when most people would turn away, who steps forward? And it can be a little thing from, you know, rehoming cats, which will resonate with Harry right now and plays into his hero complex. But, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I literally don't know where I'm going with this right now. So what I'm going to try, I'm going to try and bow out of this really gracefully. So I'm going to see about how, so Harry, how do you think justice plays in 101 Dalmatians? <laughs> But it's a good point. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about your work, Melissa, and I was talking to Matt about this before you joined the call, because we were obviously talking about you. (laughs) Not creepy. Not Not at all. (laughs) With previous guests that we've had on this podcast, there's been a very focused area, people that have worked on cetaceans or people that have worked on tigers or people that have worked on wolves. Mm. And with you, you've had such an incredible experience and you You've touched on so many different aspects of the world of animal welfare that puts you in a very unique position to have that perspective from farm animal staff to working equines to companion animal to disasters to community engagement. And so linking into what Matt said there, seeing that idea of wanting to help and justice and the suffering that you see in all of these different aspects of animal welfare, when you kind of went through your career path and decided that this was the path that you wanted to go on, did you have an idea of, was there a specific area or was it just the whole animal welfare thing? And there were so many different things that needed to be done that mm-hmm. you just kind of thought, once I'm in it, I will see where I can help. You know, it's there's always a specific moment that kind of stands out to me where I felt like from that moment on, my path was pretty cemented. Mm. And it was in 2005 when I was an undergrad, I got involved in a project um, initiated by a Brazilian professor. He sent out an email to the students in his animal behavior and welfare introductory course and just said, look, I'm from Brazil. I know of these communities of working horses and they have, you know, they're very thin. They've got wounds. They're, they've got dehydration. They've got all of these challenges. The people that really depend on them to, to feed and provide for their families and they just need a little support. They need a little help. Are there any students that would be interested in doing an independent study to try and help these communities and help these animals? And I was like, well, pfft why not? That sounds amazing. That sounds like a dream. So I got involved with this project in 2005 and we did everything from project design and and fundraising and all of the things that you need to do to prepare to actually implement a community project on the ground. And we went there in 2006 and there was a moment in one of the communities it was an informal settlement. It was um, the community didn't have the legal right to be there, but you know the government was kind of turning a blind eye as long as there were no issues. And most of the houses there had a working horse, and they went around to the different um, households in their neighborhood and collected recyclable materials um, and got some money for that. And I was walking across the field, just kind of looking around at the animals grazing and the people and some of the challenges, but also the opportunities I was seeing. And I just thought, you know this is it. I just had this really strong feeling. This is what I meant to do in my life. It's that intersection between people and animals, that unbreakable bond that weaves their lives together, that if the welfare of one is suffering, inevitably the welfare of the other will be suffering. And it's not having to choose the animals or the people. It's recognizing that they're a team and that they're a unit and that, yeah, you don't have to prioritize one over the other because you can do things that will help both of them at the same time. And I think no matter what aspect of work that I've been involved with, from disasters to working equids to companion animal management to now getting deeper into the conservation field, that to me is always the bit that resonates strongly. It's that bond between humans and animals and humans and nature that I think is one of the most powerful things that we need to strengthen and support in the animal welfare profession. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's something that Matt and I, I mean, we've talked about this both privately and on this podcast before, and I can sense Matt itching to (laughs) jump in here because it's something that we are both very, very passionate about is the human behavior change aspect of the work that we do. And you're absolutely right. The link between humans and animals is so linked, is so interdependent. Harry is right. I have a million questions. Just going back to what you were talking about there, Melissa, did you end up going to Brazil and what community was it or was it somewhere else the community 
We did, yeah. We spent three weeks in Southeast Brazil and we did a number of activities from providing vet care to the communities, to the animals, to doing some educational sessions, some workshops, um, trying to find linkages with local government, local university to try and better support this community after we went back to the US and their needs would still continue. So, yeah. In terms of equines, is a really interesting area, I think, because poor welfare tends to be generally accepted a lot of the time, or it's very hard to spot. What were the issues then in terms of that community and their attitudes towards the animals? In terms of how did you come up with the solutions in order to improve both the lives of the people and the, and the animals in those communities? Like, what was mm-hmm. the actual process? We were lucky enough because this professor of mine had been to these communities. He was from this area. He had some preliminary data from previous visits home to visit his family, just some kind of rapid welfare assessment data. So we had luckily some great information to start off with about what the key welfare issues were. You know, the the typical things that unfortunately you see very widely spread across the working equity population in the world, you know, low body condition score, a lot of wounds, eye issues, ill-fitting harness equipment, issues with related to overloading and overworking the animals, these types of things. So at the time, you know, I was really on the beginning of my journey. I didn't really know a whole lot about this type of work. This was my first time ever working on an international project, let alone with a local animal owning community. And so, you know, our knee-jerk response, and I smile as I say this because I don't want it to come across wrong, like we did the wrong thing, because by no means was that the case. I think we did the best we could at the time and the best we knew how to do. But our knee-jerk response, as it is, I think, in a lot of projects around the world is, well, these communities don't know what to do. So we just need to go and we need to educate them and give them information Mm -hmm. on how to do it differently and how to do it better for the animals. And I think for some of the issues and for some of the animal owners, it was very helpful. We provided them with information. We provided them with that temporary veterinary support for their animals to address some of the immediate issues they had. But, you know, now looking back and now looking at the way I implement the projects and support the projects I do now, it it wouldn't ever start with deciding first what the activities are that we want to do and then just forming the whole project around doing those activities. It would find out, okay, what are the barriers that these community members have to addressing poor body condition, to addressing harness issues? What are the challenges they face that might make it difficult for them to implement those changes and sustain those changes? And then what do we need to do to help make that easier? easier for them. So it was really a great learning experience for me. And I'm so grateful for it because I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't been involved in that project. That's so interesting. What was the process for you through your career that transitioned that level of understanding that you had about how to approach this and and how to engage differently? Was it things that you saw? Was it people that you worked with? Was it the opportunities that you had? How did that actually move? You know, that's, it's really interesting because it's it's hard for me to pinpoint. I've thought of this before of how did I end up on this specific path with community engagement, human behavior change. And I remember specifically, so after I finished that Brazil project, I had my enlightening moment. This is what I meant to do. This is what I've got to do. You know, I went back and I started looking for all of the organizations around the world who did this type of work, this type of project. I started reaching out to them just trying to make some contacts and try to set myself up with relationships that might help me in the future once it came time to graduate and actually get a job in this field. And about seven years later, an opportunity came up with the Brook to move to London and work from their head office as an equine behavior and welfare advisor. And I thought at the time, like, I mean, it was just my absolute dream opportunity. I had been hounding the Brook for years before that, sending anybody who would not block me my CV and stalking them at conferences and chatting with them, you know, all the things that I'm sure we've all done at one point or another to try to get a job in animal welfare. I do in podcasts, Miller's um, Um, But yeah, I mean, seven years, people at the Brook had known me for a long time because I had been reaching out so much. And a couple months into my job, I went on my first field visit to Nepal. It was one of the most incredible experiences. It was an absolute dream to be there, to talk to the communities, to work with the team, to meet the animals. And I came back and I sat down with my boss at the time. And I think her jaw dropped when I said, 
it was amazing, but I'm questioning whether this is the right thing for me to be doing because everybody knew that I had been trying so hard and this was my dream role. And suddenly after my first trip, which was an amazing trip, I'm questioning, should I be really be doing this? And I just felt this really strong calling that my role was not to just advise on equine behavior and welfare in these projects, that there was a really critical step missing of how do we really understand the people, understand where they're coming from, why and how they think and feel the way they do about animals, what challenges they're facing in their lives. You know, the, really the people side of it was really where I felt like I was being called to work. And I was lucky enough that the Brook said, well, let us know what, what you can do. Tell us what you'd be able to do for this. And they gave me an opportunity to start working in this area and to eventually build up a team in this area and develop strategies with the programs around the world. And I'm really, really grateful for that. But I can't really pinpoint exactly why it was. It just kind of is something that grew organically and just something that I felt really strongly that I needed to do and that I could contribute to. What I find it incredible is for anybody that works or is involved in the human behavior change aspect in animal welfare, the Brook was pioneering at the time mm-hmm. in the way that it approached it. And you were right there front and center at, at the beginnings of that, of taking this human behavior change aspect and putting it into an animal welfare setting. So much so that every organization that I think we work with now on the different issues can actually be traced back to some of that work at the brook and sharing the load, which is kind of this absolutely fundamental book of how to approach this Mm -hmm. community engagement aspect. And a lot of the work that I've done on companion animal stuff is rooted all the way back to that. And it really has been massively influential. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sharing the load really, that was published shortly before my time at Brooke. And that was what solidified for me at that time. Like, this is the organization I want to work for. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was because of that Brazil experience. And maybe this is kind of how my journey came about is I just sensed that we had missed a trick in what we had done in Brazil, that maybe there was more to that story and there was more to explore and more things that we could have uncovered to help that community even further. And when I read Sharing the Load and I realized, man, this is exactly the type of thing that we need to do when we start working communities is listen first, understand first, and then plan with them later. And I think that it was so influential to me and I forever grateful for that. And it it will always be, I think, influential throughout my career, no matter what type of animal welfare or conservation work I'm doing, it can be applied in so many different scenarios. There's something that I remember from, I went to the Brook headquarters and took part in a human behavior change conference represented and you were there and you gave a couple of presentations. I went back to my team and told them about it. And the reason why I remember, and I still remember it now was, the fact that you stood up and talked at length about something that didn't work in Jordan, I believe it was Jordan, a project mm-hmm, with yep. a brook, and there was an approach you had that just did not work, and you were so open about it. And listening to the way you talk about your Brazil experience, how reflective you are, and I would use the word reflective because it was something that I was taught from the outset when I trained to become a teacher, was you have to be reflective on literally a minute-by-minute basis but it was something that struck me about you because it's something that I don't know if I've come across that often in animal welfare. I think it's very, if you do it, it's quite natural, but for other people, it's quite hard to stand up and say, well, this didn't work, but this is how we're going to make it work. Because, and I don't know if that's that sort of academic approach a lot of people have where they're, they're wanting to also linking to funding and things like that. It's very difficult to sometimes think, well, let's do things differently, but Um, Is that something you've always had or is it something, are you even conscious that that is, you know, are you feeling quite uncomfortable as I'm making this very strange rant? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to uncomfortable, but that's not the reason why. (laughs) You know, Matt, it's, it's something I've found really interesting throughout my career so far is that that isn't just the standard thing that people do, that people Mm. do want to talk a lot about the successes and what didn't work. Mm. Everybody, without a doubt, every single person in animal welfare has done something that didn't quite work out the way they did. And sometimes it flops horribly. And that is, it's something to celebrate in a way. It's something you learned. You learned something new that you didn't know before. And it's going to make you better at your job. It's going to make you better able to help animals. And if you share that with other people, it can help them avoiding the same mistake. It can help them help more animals. And I just think that 
we need to really work hard to create the culture for our profession that we would like to see. And for me, I would love to see as many people as possible sharing just as emphatically what didn't work and where they went wrong and what they learned from it as they are ready to share what worked beautifully and brilliantly and that they're so proud of. I totally agree. I don't know if it comes from because we are donor run and we are dependent on the support of donors and supporters in the charity sector that we feel there is a pressure to not show failure because people are donating their hard-earned money for us to make a difference. And if we then talk about the things that we didn't do right, people are going to question our methods. But everything, particularly in animal welfare, is this a huge learning curve. And it's so important. I remember speaking to Kate Atomer many years ago. Obviously, we all know Kate and have worked with her. But I remember her saying at one point, anything that you do in animal welfare that's the positive step is still a good thing. Even if it wasn't the right thing, there was still an improvement. There was still something that was better as a result of you being there. It might have been not perfect. It might not have been exactly how you planned it. But, you know, as long as you didn't kill anything (laughs) and actually were moving in the right direction, everything is a step forward. So it might not have been as perfect. It might not have been this wonderful project that you imagined in your head. But there was still something that you did. And like you said, Melissa, there's always something that could be learned from it and to build upon. And I think it's such an important point you made there, Matt, that we need to, as a sector, be able to learn from our mistakes and share them with each other. Because if we just kind of keep them in-house, and it might be something that we talk about internally within one organization, that doesn't help everybody. And, you know, you're ending up, people are going to be making the same mistakes over and over again. So I think it's so important that we talk about this and share this kind of stuff. Yeah. To be honest, it relates really closely to one of the reasons why I love community engagement work so much. I mean, this might sound a little bit funny, but one of the things I love most about it, besides obviously that I've already said my passion is, you know, the human animal relationship, but it's that you don't have to have the answers. You don't have to be the expert. You don't have to know exactly what the right thing to do is or say or the right solution. Your role is just to be the facilitator for other people to help them figure it out for themselves, what they want to do and what the right thing is to do, what the right path is to take. And I just think that that is such a great thing. In one way, there's a lot of pressure because this is people's lives. These are animals' lives. And so the stakes are really high. But in another way, it really does relieve some of that pressure. Like you are not expected to be the know-all, be-all thing that comes and just sweeps into a community and makes everything immediately better. I think it takes courage on Mm. your part to be able to do that because again there's an expectation whether it be an individual who's an expert or an organization that goes out there the expectation is that you're going to go out there and help and whether it be from the community or the project partner that you're working with or whoever it is whichever stakeholder or person it is you're going out there they've either asked for your help or you've offered your help and there's an expectation that you're going to do something and for Mm. you to flip that around and say yes, I'll help you. But what do you need? How would you approach this? It's quite a courageous thing to be able to let that process play out, knowing that it might not be well received to begin with. And I'm sure that's an experience that you've had more than once, Melissa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think a lot of the projects I've been involved with, especially in areas where communities are used to foreign NGOs coming in and just providing all the vet care, giving away animal feed, providing everything that those communities need to get their animals in a better state for the time being, you really notice it more there than anywhere else that they're kind of looking at you like, come on, what are you going to give us? What do you have to offer us here? And I totally get that, but it hasn't inspired me anymore to, okay, well, I guess we got to give them a little something here and do a little something. It actually has made me more embedded in the right way to do it is even if you start out slow and the first six months, you only have one, two, three, four people coming to meetings and willing to work with you. It will eventually pick up. People will start to see the benefits that can be had for doing it by themselves. So many communities are sick of it too. They're sick of organizations coming in giving them all these things, making their lives better, and then leaving them hanging. And so I think that eventually when communities see that by just giving them a little support to organize themselves, to work through their issues, and to give them that little extra kick that they need to develop and run some of these activities themselves, I think it they see that that has a really bright future for them. And that's something that they can be proud of and that they can own and really run with it. 
And I think also where you're talking there about almost short-termism in terms of where, like, say, people come in, they put things in place, and then they leave, that sort of parachute mm-hmm. approach, that can have such a damaging impact on those communities and their their trust or um, respect for future projects coming in. You know, they don't forget where you parachute in and then you parachute out and remove services, do they? They will remember that for months and years to come when someone else or you come back with a different approach. It can be so damaging. I remember when I was in, I worked in Bradford for on a community engagement project and the RSPCA just couldn't afford to run their vet clinic there anymore. Mm-hmm. And they had to stop the, the hospital and shut it down. And that community, years later when I turned up, were still talking about that. Mm. That was still the number one animal welfare issue. And even if it wasn't having a direct impact on the provision they were providing for animals, it was used as part of the narrative, like a a distrust of other agencies. And that made my job harder. I'm not blaming the RSPCA, but what I'm trying to say is when you're making these decisions, there is a long-term impact to them, isn't there? Even if you're looking at it from a short-term perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, in line with the do no harm principle, you have to think every step of the way when you're working with the community, these are their lives, this is their home, you may be here for a period of time and be trying to help and make things better. But they will be here for the foreseeable future. And so I always encourage the teams that I work with the colleagues that I work with to think for the finish from day one, always think of the day when you will no longer be there and don't start something that you're not prepared to find a way to see it through or that it can carry on if it's of value to the community. Because it really can, besides creating distrust and making it more difficult for other initiatives that could really make a difference to succeed. I've seen cases where it can leave the community in a worse state than they were before the project even started. So you have to be really careful. And I think it comes back to project management as a skill and I know somebody who is a colleague of mine who has been listening to this podcast and since we've been doing it she's decided to start a project management course which I'm really proud of because it's such an underappreciated skill that it's not an easy thing but it's so important and I've heard you mention Melissa throughout this talking about projects and mm-hmm. it isn't issues that they're projects aren't they and you have to go in and have discipline you have to have phases, you have to be able to report, you have to, these are all skills that there are many different project management courses out there, but it's so important. I know this is something that Harry, I know is very passionate about. And Harry, I've had the privilege of being in one of his workshops about this. And he's a leader in this. He won't say this for himself, but both of you are. But it's something that I think is such an underutilized skill. And I don't know if it's even taught at university that much as part of zoology or other degrees, but it's so important. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more, Matt. I mean, I think the great thing about a project, which is kind of the the, the element that I think makes the biggest difference, is that it really forces you to have set a time frame for it. Mm. And by the end of that time frame, it forces you to be pretty clear about what you're trying to achieve. And I think that that's something that we need to do as much as possible in the animal welfare profession, because no one will be in any one place forever. And we need to be clear about what it is we're trying to achieve, how it fits into the bigger picture, and really set ourselves a target for achieving that. And no, it won't always go to plan. And sometimes you extend or sometimes you build a, a phase two after the project, the first phase finishes, and that's okay. But it, at least it kind of helps you to really have that compass to guide you along the way so that you're not just being led by activities and firefighting, but you're actually kind of working things into the bigger picture in the longer term. When you think about the projects that you've worked on and the places that you've worked in, is there anywhere that springs to mind where because as we said, it's a lengthy process to engage with the community, but the results are quite wonderful when they happen and quite miraculous in some ways where you see that change and you see that ownership of that change. Are there particular places that you've, where you've seen that happen where it's just been something really special? Like there's been a moment where you see that light or you see that change and makes it all worthwhile, even though at some point you knew you were going to get there. But is there anything that springs to mind? Yeah, I mean, I talk about this example a lot to friends and to those in my professional circle. So I'm sure, you know, some folks may have heard it before. But to me, the work that I did with the team in Ethiopia 
while I was at the Brook was extremely special and close to my heart, especially the work that we did in urban areas. And Mm -hmm. this had been a context for the local team that had been really challenging. The other NGOs working in the area were very used to coming in and paying per diems or paying stipends for engaging in community meetings and engaging in community activities. And that really was perceived as the only way that we could get people to engage in the work. But it just really wasn't producing the change that we wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the team were really frustrated and they were struggling with what do we do next? How do we overcome this issue? And I think they themselves had gotten to a point where they believed that this was probably the only way to do it and it just wasn't really going to work. And so I think the reason why I love this project so much is because it was just as much about changing the attitudes and the behavior of the animal owners as it was about my own teammates and Mm. to work with them slowly but surely to test out a different way of doing things to see if we might try to find different ways to get people to engage without having to pay them per diems being able to kind of see some results slowly but surely with a smaller group of individuals and trying to convince them that there were other ways of doing it that could potentially work and I think at the end of this project I mean it was not smooth every step of the way. It was challenging and it had its its learnings. But at the end of the project, really, I felt this transformation in the team, their excitement when talking about the work, the way that they actually lit up and seemed to be proud of what they were doing and what they were achieving, the way that they talked about engaging with communities and animal owners and what those communities and owners, what they perceived they were willing to do. It was just such a huge transformation. It was something I was so proud of. And, you know, of course, yeah, we saw some really positive changes in animal welfare. We saw some improvements in body condition score and less wounds and the animals had better places to rest at night and better access to local vet care and all of these wonderful things that had an impact. But for me, I think it was such a great thing to see this team light up and find their renewed sense of passion and purpose for this work. And that was just so special to me. It's fantastic. What sort of skills have you learned, Melissa, as you've gone? Because obviously it seems like you, you know, you've you openly said it's very much been a learning journey, hasn't it, for you? And you're, you're picking things up as you're going along and implementing mm-hmm. them and things. In terms of you leading these projects and being a leader for them, what sort of skill that you think you need in order to be good at community engagement? Because I remember Leah Garces saying that not everyone is, can do campaigning. You have mm-hmm. to have a certain set of skills. In terms of community engagement, Is there a certain skill that stands out that you need to be a good leader of a community engagement project? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Matt. And it's something I've thought about a lot, especially in being part of the process to hire community engagement officers Mm. and consultants to do this work on the ground and always having the perpetual argument, oh, they need to be a vet. Oh, they need to be an animal welfare expert. Oh, they need to be certified in this, that or the other. And and every single time I emphatically come back with no, no, and no. I mean, at the end of the day, you need to be a people person. You need to be able to facilitate good conversations, meaningful conversations, to not step on people's toes, to recognize the right moment when they might be struggling a bit and they need a little bit of guidance, but not to overwhelm them with just telling them what to do and how to do it. And, you know, for me, it's something I never received any formal training in is is facilitation, but it's a role that I recognize even as a kid, I was always kind of playing with friends when they were having a problem or a challenge. A lot of my friends' parents as a kid told me, oh, you should be a psychologist one day or a psychiatrist. You really helped my daughter so much work through this issue. And it's just really listening to people and asking questions rather than telling them how it is or what they should Mm. do, how they should feel. And it's really hard to gauge sometimes whether people have that or they don't, you kind of need to see them in action. You need to see them interacting with people. And you can't very well, when you're interviewing for a community engagement officer, you can't say, okay, great, but we'd like to see you down in the field, you know, with the community in Kenya interacting first, that's your interview. So it's, it's a challenging one, but it's a perpetual one that I will always be waving the flag on when people tell me you need to have X, Y, or Z skills, Mm -hmm technical expertise, because really you don't, you need to have access to the right people with those technical skills. I've always been lucky enough. I have, you know, I have a master's degree in animal science, so I do have some level of technical expertise in animal care and husbandry and health. But when it gets to be a little bit more technical, I do know exactly where I can call upon colleagues to help me figure out an issue with certain disease or lameness or you have it. But that skill in itself is not the most valuable one that you need to engage with communities. I totally agree. You're absolutely right, Melissa. It's, if you don't care about the people mm-hmm. in some degree, 
you often hear this in animal welfare. It's, oh, I prefer animals to people. I'd rather work with animals than people. You're clearly not going to be somebody that's going to be very good at community engagement because your focus yeah. is always going to be on the animals. And that's not to say that they can't do good work in the area that they want to do. But for this kind of work, you genuinely have to care about the people and their struggles and their story and their needs. Yeah. Do you find sometimes, from my own personal experience, it's striking that right balance because you do care about the people and you are genuinely interested in what they have to say. And, and there's that belief there that, as you said earlier, the solutions are contained within the community. They know the best way to address their own needs. But when you're wearing the different hats and shifting mm -hmm. between them, obviously you have your as impartial as possible, facilitating, as you said, getting the community on side to find those solutions. But equally, when you've got your animal welfare hat, you want to make sure that they don't go down a rabbit hole and miss something that's important for welfare because it might be better for them. But because they're not at the stage yet that they have that level of understanding, they might need that interjection of, but have you thought about it this way? Because from the animal's point of view, maybe that's not great. How do you balance those things? Yeah, that's a tough one because, I mean, it's always the perpetual challenge with community engagement for animal welfare projects because you do want them to lead. But obviously there are some things that they aren't aware of or they don't have experience in or they don't have the technical expertise to know exactly how to do it. For me, it's not about asking them to decide every single thing that the project will do and exactly how it should be done, but it's to agree on and highlight what the priority needs are. And I think one of the greatest things that you can do with the community to get them to that stage where they start to see things that they maybe haven't seen before is to do simple welfare assessments with them. Do a transect walk around the community as a group, agree where you're going to be looking, you know, from the tip of the tail to the tip of the nose. And what are you guys seeing that looks different? What are you seeing? And what effect do you think that has on the animal? And what do you think could be done to address that? And having these conversations in a group and getting people in the habit of doing that assessment is, I think, something that can help them on that journey and in, in determining the right priorities for the animal. And it's certainly, it's one of the things that better than any coursework that I paid quite a hefty price for at my university <laughs> in the U.S. was the animal welfare judging and assessment team that I was a part of. And it really trained me to do this proper assessment of animals and to basically, in a nutshell, say what are the key issues and what needs to be considered in the solutions. And that, I think, is more powerful than any skill that mm. you could ever have coming into working on animal welfare issues. It's so refreshing to hear you say that, Melissa, because... Um, I'm just generally interested in both your opinions on this. Do you think that organisations can do better at this in terms of looking for other skills? Because I do sometimes get the feeling because a lot of organisations want a lot in terms of qualifications yeah. and experience. Do you, and I'm interested in your view on this, Harry, as well, being in your position, about do you think the industry could do a little bit more to make it more accessible for people that have that, in my opinion, valuable experience of being on the ground, interacting with communities, but maybe necessarily don't have X, Y, Z letters after their name or certain qualifications. Definitely, I think that there is a lack of ability to see how well things transfer. I mean, I've even had things in the past, you know, years ago when I was applying for a job and someone looked at me and said, oh, but you don't have companion animals experience. You've only worked with working equids and farm animals. And I thought, yeah, but it's animal welfare and it's animal welfare projects and it's um, community engagement and it all transfers, even though it's a different species. And I think sometimes there is this kind of lack of ability to see how well something transfers. You know, I mean, community engagement, for example, the process you take and a lot of the tools and methods and approaches you use, it's not going to be vastly different when you're working on an animal welfare project versus a mm. malaria project or, you know, a large landscape conservation project. It's a lot of the same ethos and methodology and tools. But for some reason, a lot of times people don't see how well those things transfer. And you do see a lot of job adverts out there and a lot of organizations looking to bring talent into their organization who have exactly the to a T experience that they want mm. the person to then do in that role. I completely agree. And I find it interesting that when you talk about specifically from when we're talking about the animal aspect of, say, larger, medium to larger size organizations. 
the animal aspect is something that gets siloed and, and pigeonholed quite easily. You know, as you said, Melissa, you know, if you've got experience in farm animal welfare, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard sometimes, not always, because there are organizations that recognize that transferability between the two. But many organizations are like, well, you don't have the companion animal experience. Like you said, you don't have the wildlife experience. But that doesn't translate into other areas. For example, if you're a career campaigner or a career Mm -hmm. fundraiser or something like that, the fact that you have worked in other sectors for other projects is seen as a plus. You can bring those skills as a fundraiser because you raised money for a children's charity or a disaster relief charity and focus on animal welfare. And it's seen as a benefit to bring those things in from the outside. But within animal welfare, there still seems to be this hesitation to recognize the skills that cross between species or area of animal welfare. I think it's improving, but I don't think fast enough at all. Yeah, I fully agree, Harry. I agree too. I think I'm going to speak on your behalf here, Harry, so please stop me. But I don't know if it's just because I come from an educational background and I've come into animal welfare and therefore I think I have a natural tendency to feel behind or naturally like I'm on the back foot. So therefore it's something I think I'm maybe a little bit more, you know, making it a bigger issue than it is just because I feel like I have a lot of experience now, but I don't have an animal qualification or a behavior or anything like that. So it's sort of the role I got at the moment is one that I got through experience, not qualifications, and similar to the one before. So I don't know, Harry, if that's the same with you as well, but it's something you and I have talked about a lot, isn't it? It is. And just between us and the podcast listeners, I am living proof that it's possible to bullshit your way into a decent career in animal welfare. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm amazed I've got this far. Like I'm constantly <laughs> waiting for somebody to find me out. <laughs> but you know what, Harry, that's so fascinating. That's the phrase that I want to say. I always feel like I'm going to get found out because mm-hmm. I feel like, and I think this is why, Melissa, I've got in touch with you in the past because you're one of the, you know, like Harry, people I look up to. And I generally mean that. I'm not just saying that. And Harry can back me up on that. You know, I, I've I always spoke about you to Harry and not in a creepy way. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing on this, but maybe you should take one of these, <laughs> maybe you should take one of these reflective moments and <laughs> reflect on how creepy you're being in this But it's the reason why I sort of, I think I'm so, you know, this is why Harry and I got talking because I reached out to Harry for advice and he's never been able to get rid of me since. But Um, So many regrets. (laughs) I know, but I think because of that, I'm always feeling like I'm having to prove myself, that I'm winging it almost, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I think that's maybe why I'm more sensitive about this issue, where when when you're looking at job specs, it does feel like a lot is being asked of people, but maybe it isn't, and maybe that's just uh, the way both Harry and I are kind of, because we don't have that qualification, maybe that's how we feel about it. I think though, Matt, I mean, you know, there's that phrase, fake it till you make it. And I think in some way, everyone, even the world's top experts in their specific area, everyone has areas on a regular basis within their career where they're, uh, do I really know how to do this? Do I really know an answer to this? And I think that's totally normal. And I just think people, I don't know if it's just this need that we all feel to present ourselves as these perfect professional beings to the outside world. We're all just humans, you know, you know, we're all just learning as we go throughout our careers, trying things, figuring it out. And, you know, on a regular basis, I have tasks that come up in my work and my projects. I'm not sure. Do I really know exactly the right way to do this? And you figure it out as you go. And that's kind of what we're all doing. I think we just don't do a good enough job talking about it enough and being open Mm. about it enough so that people realize that they're not alone in that. I agree totally. And we were talking about that with Leah Garces, weren't we, Harry, about afterwards? Yeah, she actually said a very similar thing to you. It's about faking it till you make it. And it's it's true. (laughs) And the thing is, it's not like you're completely bullshitting your way through. It's just kind of like you go with it, with the experience you have, the intentions are sound and good and true. And like you you said, Melissa, you know, if you have a good team around you and the expertise to call on so that if something happens that you do need that support, that it's there and you find your way through. And it's not that you're making stuff up, but it's just animal welfare is still a developing field. And what we now see in animal welfare is still, I mean, it's still pretty new. We're still Mm. kind of feeling our way. And and this whole human behavior change aspect and community engagement is still, you know, it's been worked in the development field, the human development field for many years, but it's still new in animal welfare. And we're still trying to figure it out. And there's no shame in that. There's nothing wrong Mm. with that because every step we take is a step in the right direction. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't agree more. I was really interested in sort of asking you, Melissa, as well, because you've worked for um, a lot of amazing organisations. You know, you talked about, uh, I asked you a second ago about, you know, what skill. If you had to recommend one thing for somebody, Melissa, somebody who is at university or somebody that's wanting a change of career, is there something you could recommend that people go and do in order to get that experience or something you would recommend people that maybe want to join your team at I4? something that you would recommend they do or a particular skill or qualification? I don't necessarily know if there's like a particular skill or qualification. I mean, other than what we talked about earlier, Matt, with project management, I mean, project management is thankfully a skill that transfers across all sectors. And so that's always something useful to have. But I think what I've realized, because I'm always quite happy when people reach out to me on LinkedIn or send me an email, if even if I've never met them, just for some career advice or to find out how I got to the position I'm in. And what I've noticed along the way is it's always really helpful if people are really clear on what their thing is. Mm, yeah. And I, that's a hard thing to pin down when you know you love animals, you know you want to help them in some way, but you don't really know how or what you'd like to do or what unique offer that you have to the sector. Mm. It's really hard for people to say, well, okay, this could be an organization. This could be a person I could link you up with to talk to, or this could be an avenue you could go down, or this course would might help you along your way. And I think that's often a struggle for people. And I've, I've had that at various points in my career, you know, where I wasn't quite sure exactly how to frame my unique value add when I was trying to network with people and talk to people and apply for positions. And I've gotten better and better at it through the years as I've grown in my profession and gotten more experience. But I think that is really something valuable that people can, you know, try different things, volunteer, do internships, travel, see the work on the ground, read lots of things, attend conferences. And when time and time again, the same type of project or the same theme keeps really piquing your interest and sparking you and lighting that passion inside of you, then maybe that's your thing and explore it and go with it for a while and see, try it on for size. And I think that's probably the best thing that people can do in the sector is to really pin down and hone in on what their thing is, what their unique value add is. Mm. How have you found moving from organizations, Melissa? Is it like, you know, moving from huge organizations to another organization, like the Brook to I4? I mean, is it sort of how they're working and their approach to things? Does it take a little bit of time or those sort of things? Absolutely. I mean, it can be really, really challenging to, you know, I mean, we spend so much of our time, so many hours of our day at work, working with people, building relationships, you know, figuring out what makes certain people in your team tick and therefore how to, you know, share an idea and get them excited about or supportive about something. And then suddenly being thrown into the deep end of a totally different organization, especially in my case, when I made my last career move, I was moving from a single species organization to one that worked on all types of animals. And that's a pretty big shift. And I think it just, you always have to be forgiving of yourself and know that it takes time. You know, it's a culture shift. It's a shift in your ways of working. There's different processes, different rules, different personalities. And it takes a couple of years sometimes to get your feet under you and figure out where exactly you fit into that new environment. And when you think about... um... How do you see things going in the future? I mean, I guess if I'm right in the way that you've talked, it's been very much you kind of have sought the opportunities and where you can do the most good moving forward. But do you have any ambition as far as a dream goal or something that you hope to either from yourself or just animal welfare generally in the area that you're working in the future? Oh, that's a good question, Harry. Um... Nailed it, Harry. Nailed it. (laughs) Nailed it. Spot on. Unfortunately, I don't really know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. No, I would say, I mean, you know, I I think a few years back, I had a little bit of an existential crisis because it was like I, I had waited so long to get exactly and worked so hard to get exactly the job that I was in. And I realized I absolutely loved my job and it was a great job, but I felt like the time had come to move on, to mm-hmm. expand my skills to expand my experience. And it it was, I had this little crisis moment of what do I do with my life from here? And, you know, then the job at IFA came along and it's been a really great opportunity. I've gotten to apply my skills and my expertise to really, really different types of projects, you know, get deeper into the conservation sector and and working with communities in that sense. And I can't tell you what I'll be doing Mm. in five years time. The one thing I can tell you is that I have to be doing something where I feel and I can see that I'm making some kind of difference, Mm. even if 
not directly working in the field with animals. I want to be able to help teams to do the best they can to make an impact for animals. And whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm doing it, I think that's my number one goal and the thing that I know without a doubt that I have to be doing in five or 10 years time. I think that's another example, Melissa, of you being reflective again. I think it's really important that that reflection often is a strength, but at times it can seem like a weakness to some people, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I genuinely believe that it's good every once in a while to stop Mm. and reassess and make sure that you're still doing something that is the right fit for you, both personally and professionally. And I think that, you know, it's one of the reasons whether I'm looking for a job or not, I always keep an eye on what's out there because it's good to see how the sector is evolving and changing the types of things they're looking for. You get a sense for people's strategies, the projects that they're prioritizing, the skills they're looking for. And it really helps you to kind of get a a really good sense of where the wider animal welfare sector is headed in the coming years. What are the things that they're trying to link in with and they're getting excited about and You know, I I think that's something I do on a regular basis is just always question and be critical of my own role in all of this. Am I doing what allows me to have the greatest impact in the way that I want to have it? When we're talking about reflectiveness, and this is a question we've asked before, but thinking back to that childhood Melissa, or actually the (laughs) Melissa that decided that she was going to go on this career path and decided that she wanted to make a difference, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? Or are you kind of happy with the way things went because they kind of led up to where things are now? You know, I think I've thought about this before and I thought, you know, even things of like, oh, was that the right decision? Should I have gone down that route? And then I always end up coming back to the point of, you know, that cheesy old line of everything that's happened to me on my journey has gotten me to where I am today. And if, if any one of those things had changed, I don't know if I'd be at the point I'm at. And it's not to say I have the perfect career, or I have the perfect life, and it's all daisies and rainbows. But it's just to say, I think I'm really grateful for all of the twists and turns on the path, the things that didn't quite turn out to be what I expected and caused me sleepless nights and the things that were shining proud moments in my career and I think every single one of those has enriched the professional that I'm able to be today and so I think the advice would just be don't give up this is all kind of happening for a reason it'll get you somewhere good just wait that was the animal chat podcast with Melissa Lajeski 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 Close. Closer than all the other times you tried saying with, with that Melissa. With that Melissa bird. Right. <laughs> that Melissa bird, those other podcasts. So um that was a great episode with Melissa. There's so much to get out of it. And you know what? Just thank God we got people like Melissa in this sector because without um people like her working in, people like yourself, Harry, people that people like you ring you know what? There's something I want to say here. You're often very, very complimentary to me, Matt, and you bring up my work and change for animals and, and in podcasts you mention the work I do. And I never change, or change very animals. I very rarely change, animals change for animals foundation. But I very rarely say anything nice about me. Yeah, it's true. I very rarely <laughs> say anything nice about you. And there's, there and there's a very good reason for that. Yeah, because, because I'm a there's very idiot. little positive to say about you, Matt. I mean, with borderline <laughs> managing to scrape together a podcast but professionally (laughs) like i really struggle to say anything (laughs) good about you either in public or in private yeah it's it's just very but all that said is that why you don't stand next to me at conferences that's because you fart and don't know (laughs) but actually I don't know where I'm going with this because I still don't feel compelled to say anything nice about you. It goes against every fiber of my being. But no, I, you often say nice things about me and nice things about Melissa. And the listeners out there should also know that Matt does incredible work. He has mentioned way too many times his background as a teacher. Uh, he shoehorns that into pretty much every podcast we talk about. Oh, I used to be a teacher. I trained as a teacher. We know. We get it. You used to be a teacher. You know about education. But the thing is, and we talk about this in this podcast, is the transferable skills that you have brought with you from the education sector and from everything that you've worked on is something that is so valuable. And you do such a terrific job. And I, as well as doing this podcast, Matt and I, we have worked on things that have kind of overlapped. And 
I know personally that the input that you have had in organizations and projects and campaigns to do with education has been exceptional. And you have provided me with information and ways of looking at education that has been incredibly useful for the work that I do and for the organizations that I work with. And so, you know, take this, Matt, because this is probably the last time I'm going to be complimentary. You might just want to make a note of what minute and second this is within the podcast, because if you're ever feeling down, you might just want to listen to this bit because it ain't happening again. This is it. This is the the only compliment you will get from me. How fucking uncomfortable I am right now. Um. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, listen to the podcast, listen to this podcast, share this podcast, like this podcast, review this podcast. And also, I think it's important to say, if you're going through COVID right now and you're in one of those animal welfare charities that are getting restructured, and we all know what I mean by that, if you need any help or guidance, reach out to Harry and I, and we can give you at least some opinion on the industry or anything like that, reach out to us. I don't mind, reach out to me on LinkedIn because... This is having a massive effect on the industry. Lots of people sadly being made redundant, particularly in the UK. I don't know about you, Harry, but if you want some advice, do not hesitate to reach out. That's a genuine offer as well yeah, to people. Absolutely. Because it is going to be hard the next few years. And if you need advice, or you want even on what a CV should look like, Harry helped me so fucking much. Melissa's helped me. I'm not saying contact Melissa. But she says that on the podcast. She's always willing to have people contact her. And it's very much, a, for me, and I know for you, I was so lucky to have people that were willing to give me time when I was Mm. coming up in this industry that gave me their time, that gave me advice and guidance. And for me, this is very much a paying it forward thing. The famous saying, you know, I'm only where I am because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and the people that came before me and the work that we do in animal welfare is only as a result of everybody that came before. And I think it's important for anybody anybody that works in this industry to be of the mindset where we are supporting each other, that the people that are coming up that are going to be the next generation or the next however many years or the next project or the next organization, we need to be able to help them as much as possible. And so reach out to us. And it's something that Matt and I both strongly believe in is to be able to provide that support and build this sector and make it robust and strong so that we can make a difference. So thanks very much for listening to this edition of the Animal Chat Podcast. And we will see you again in a couple You're welcome. You're welcome, everyone. That's the worst Trump impression I've ever heard of. What do you mean? (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) Oh, God. Bye, everyone. Bye.